Hey there, welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. This podcast is all about providing clarity, insight, and encouragement for life and mission. And my name is Aaron Santemeyer, and I'm going to be your host. Today, we have the phenomenal opportunity to have with us back on the podcast, a friend of the podcast, Dr. Sherwood Lingenfelter, and we get to sit down and talk about teamwork cross-culturally a subject that I think is vitally important, whether you're working in Madagascar, you're working in Barcelona, or you're working in Wally Ford, West Virginia, I don't know, wherever you're working. Um, The idea that our world now is becoming more diverse, where we're working with people, serving with people that that come from different backgrounds and cultures, and how we can work together um, to promote the gospel, or or maybe in the workplace, whatever your your end goal is. And we had some vital conversations, uh, just learning from, from him about the idea. The book is full of case studies, which I think is really valuable. And he talks through some of those case studies and the idea that what can we take from a biblical perspective on working um, cross-culturally? What does that that mean when when our language that maybe we're functioning is not the primary language that that everybody on the team grew up with? What is their maternal language? or And, and that how that impacts um, communication. Just a, a phenomenal conversation. We also discuss some other areas about working cross-culturally that, that I think were the idea of should we be focused on return on investment? And maybe is that a, what does that promote into? Or should we be focused on bringing workers to the harvest field? And it should be focused on the harvest rather than um, return on investment and those business principles. He just addresses some vital components, and he's a brilliant mind and just an honor to have him on the podcast. do want to ask you to continue to send in your questions for Back Channel with Foth. That's where we sit down with Dick Foth and um, answer listeners' questions. We curate those and put those together. Just a phenomenal time, um, always learning and uh, spending time with, with Dick on that. And do want to um, encourage you to continue to sc- subscribe to the podcast. I know the podcasts I subscribe to are also the ones that um, I listen to, and so do want want you to ask you you to continue to do that and um yeah looking forward to some episodes continuing throughout the summer some really exciting ones coming up in the future so well there's no time better than now to get started so here we go Greetings and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. So excited to be here again today with our friend of the podcast Dr. Sherwood Ligenfelder. Sherwood welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much, Aaron. It's a joy to be with you. Uh, always a joy. Yes. And um, for those who have not listened, we've we spent some time together in the past talking about leadership in the way of the cross. One of your books, Leading Cross-Culturally and Ministering Cross-Culturally was the last one we went through. And uh, we just, yeah, just enjoy learning from you and um, your focus on the gospel and weaving anthropology and cross-cultural principles in there. They're a challenge and, uh, and good for us all. So, Dr. Sherwood, if someone has not listened to those other episodes, could you just take a few minutes and just share a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, you know, I I started, uh, by God's grace, working with Wycliffe Bible Translators back in uh, 1977. Uh, my first opportunity to serve them was uh, to be, be a social anthropologist for them in Brazil. And I went down there for several months to partner with the translator and help him understand the native peoples that he was working with. Um, That really was a radical moment for me. It was a time in my life when uh, I was, um, you know, open to what the Lord had for me, but I'd walked away from the Lord and the Lord just made it clear to me that uh, 
being an anthropologist for the kingdom of God was far more gratifying than anything I could do anywhere else. Wow. And so that began a journey with um, Wycliffe SIL. And, uh, and I, I basically, for the next 45 years, was a consultant to SIL in many different places in the world. Uh, I went to places, I did research sometimes, I did training workshops. My wife and I went together. I helped her get her PhD in, in intercultural education. Wow. And so we were a team. Yeah. And as a team, we basically uh, um, served in whatever way the Lord enabled us to. Wow. So uh, well, the Lord called us to go to Biola University from the State University of New York in 1983. And that was a really significant change for us because mm -hmm. Biola brought us into connection with uh, uh, young people that were interested in mission and in training for mission. And so it, my journey at Biola, my journey with Wycliffe SIL uh, is one that really has shaped me into who I am today and, and the source of all the books that I've written on mission. Uh, they uh, have come out of the people that I have learned from, the, the places where I have been stretched and, and uh, challenged. And uh, it's been a joy to, to learn, to grow, and to serve the Lord with my skills as a social anthropologist. Wow. And blessing and blessings. And uh, as I've shared in the past, your books have traveled from with me from U.S. to France, France to Burkina Faso, Burkina Faso to Madagascar and Madagascar to Kenya. So um, they have they've seen the miles, the books in my suitcase. So um, really, really appreciate you. Sure. Well, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about one the new book that's coming out, um, Teamwork Cross-Culturally. Can you just share a little bit about maybe the backstory of this book and what has led you to to carry on and, and, and finish the writing? of it well let me just first of all summarize the book in one sentence sure this book is about surrendering the idea that my way is the right way hmm. uh, it's the whole idea that my way of doing things is the right way of doing things is the source of all of our challenges and problems as we work cross-culturally and the interesting thing is that this story actually began uh, in 1984 <clears throat> because in 1984 Judy and I had followed the Lord to buy University. And Julie Green, the co-author of this book, was one of our undergraduate students in 1984. Uh, and she graduated from Biola. She came back, got a master's degree in mission to Biola. And then she went out to uh, Borneo to work with Wycliffe Bible Translators. <clears throat> well, in 1987, my consulting work with, with Wycliffe took me to Borneo, Judy to Borneo, and we together did a workshop there uh, on social organization of Borneo societies. In the group of missionaries there, there was a young woman by the name of Sue Harris. Uh, she is now Sue Harris Russell. But um, Sue at that time uh, was just new, and she really didn't know anything about the whole idea of how you study a culture. And basically, during that intensive summertime with other translators, we coached Sue in terms of how to learn about the culture that she was translating the scripture for. Uh, and she went on and she completed a New Testament for this group of people called the Tagal in Borneo. Wow. So uh, the, these two people really taught me many things over their life journey. Uh, the interesting thing is that Julie Green went to Borneo sometime in the late 80s and became a partner with Sue Harris. Uh, and they worked together for a while. And then Sue came back for further study and Julie went on and found another partner. And she continued her work in Southeast Asia. So uh, let me just say this, that Julie Green helps us understand that working together is a wicked problem. 
how did she learn that? Because she tried working together with multinational teams in SIL, and she could not solve the problems. They, they all thought that their way was the right way. Uh, and that whole idea of my way being the right way, there was this huge disagreement. She had a team in Southeast Asia that included a member from Indonesia, a member from Denmark, a member from the Philippines, a member from the United Kingdom, a member from Australia, and she was from the United States. So you have a multinational team. And they all felt that their way of doing it was the right way. And, and she could not get unity on the team. It was impossible. Their work and their values were so far apart, they preferred to work alone rather than together. Hmm. And so um, she came to Fuller back in, the, 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 um, in, in 2000. I don't remember exactly the year, right. but she came to Fuller to do research on this. And she discovered the literature on wicked problems in that research. And as she wrote her dissertation, she basically processed, how do we resolve this wicked problem in relationship with the people we have in my teams in South Asia? When I read her dissertation, I was so impressed with it. It was it, She finished in 2013, and I thought, these ideas are critical for us. Uh, well, in 2016, I was invited to do a conference for World Renew in Thailand. It's a, a development group working in Asia. And... Uh, I found Julie's idea so compelling that I went and I gave lectures out of Julie's dissertation. Well, those people in World Renew were so challenged and so blessed by this work that they said, wow, we've never heard anything like this before. And uh, I came back from that conference and I said, Julie, you need to write this up. You need to write a book. Hmm. And so I said, I'll help you if you want. So we started together. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> the, the tragedy is that Julie had contracted uh, melanoma before that. And the melanoma continued to afflict her and she get treatments. She was working from the U.S. at the time. And uh, for a couple of, you know, for about a year and a half, she and I were worked on shaping this book. And then the melanoma just hit her in a devastating way. And finally, she went to be with the Lord in October of 2020. Wow. And in the last month when she was dying, I was praying for her. And the Lord just said to me, Sherwood, you need to finish this book. Hmm. Well, <clears throat> About the same time, I got three books from Sue Harris Russell, uh, hmm. and the main book was a book called "In the World or uh, Out and In the World or Not of the World." Hmm. Uh, and in reading this book, Sue Harris Russell gave me the insight that the only way that we can be effective in the world is in Christ. Hmm. And she basically read all of the literature from the early church in the, in the Greek. And in this, uh, for her PhD at UCLA in New Testament, she wrote this book on, on the church and the early church and how it struggled with being in the world, but not of the world, hmm. uh, and how they resolved that. And I thought, you know, this insight that in the world, the only way to resolve the issues of conflict is in Christ. And, and Russell just made this so clear to me. And so when I sat down after, uh, during the last month when Julie was dying and began to process this, I saw how their two ideas came together. Hmm. And so I'm learning from my students. Yeah, They're teaching me hmm. how to deal with these problems out of their hard work in terms of missions uh, in this Bible work of Bible translation. Wow. And the, um, the book came out of the, 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 the dialogue with these two women who really had a profound influence on my life. Wow. 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 And um, 
the impact they've had on your life. And then it's carrying on um, to impact my life. I was, I was, I had the opportunity to have an early reading of the book. And like you said, very challenging. I had never heard of the def, the word wicked problem or the words wicked problem or the phrase wicked problems. Um, can you share a little bit more about this term and maybe the difference between a critical problem and a routine problem and the idea of wicked problem? Sure. Um, as Julie was researching this in the literature, she basically was looking at uh, some secular work that was done in the area of organizations and, and in government. And uh, the authors of this work uh, said that so, so many of the issues that we encounter in organizations, complex organizations or in government, uh, create problems that just can't be resolved. Uh, mm. they're, they're so difficult because of the complexity of the issues in them. And, uh, and, and the authors of these works talked about the fact that critical problems and routine problems are how we're trained. We're mm. trained to deal with critical problems like a fire. If, if the building is on fire, you know right away, you got to call the fire department. Right. You know right away, you got to get people out. You know exactly what you have to do. You have a process where you, this is a crisis, and in a crisis, you have a map of how you're supposed to be responding. Um, years ago, I was in the island of Yap, and uh, there was a typhoon. Well, the Coast Guard had a whole book on how you deal with the critical problem of typhoons. And the, three days before the storm hits, they're all prepared. They've got everything tied up. Everything is ready for this wicked problem. You know, I mean, this is quite critical problem. Right. Uh, a wicked problem, you, you really can't resolve it that way. Uh, <laughs> it's just so complicated. It's so difficult that you just don't have uh, a way to set up a process that will just resolve Routine problems are the kind that we deal with in management every day. You have to have prepare a budget. You have to deal with disciplinary problems in your employees. You have to have a procedure for that. You have to deal with promotions. You have to deal with, uh, with the, the actual management issues of day by day. And uh, my president, Clyde Cook at Biola, used to say to me, Sherwood, you, you basically form policies so you don't have to make the same decision every day. Those are routine problems. They, they happen every day and you make policies to handle them. But then he said to me, you know, policies can never handle the complexity of human problems. Uh, there's always something that really demands that you as a leader take a decision that's an exception to the policy. So don't ever forget that. The policy can't serve you in every issue you face. Wow. Well, I thought, you know, that was a very profound insight for me as a, yeah. a young leader in, in an academic world. Uh, well, when I read Julie's work on wicked problems, I realized that, okay, wicked problems are have so many variables and, and they are they're uncontrollable uh, hmm. and they're so difficult that you really cannot uh, resolve them. They will continue to be with you, and and you you just have to deal with their ongoing complexities. Um, wow! Um, wow! 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 So, wicked problems is that something that you know? I've read through the book. Is that something that just exists in the current age that we're living in, where we have organizational management, organizational management theory, or is this something that you can see? Yeah, f for in in times past. Well, if you read your Bible carefully, you'll find them in your Bible. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what fact, I was, yeah. that's what I was wanting for you to share with us about. <laughs> you know, I have written a chapter on in this book, in the opening section of the book, on the Apostle Paul's wicked problem. Mm 
Hmm. Uh, and, and if we think about it, the Apostle Paul in the first century was God's chosen messenger to the Gentiles. But this was not something that people agreed upon. Uh, in fact, there were significant disagreements about this in Paul's community, in the Christian community, and among the Gentiles. Uh, and so the Jewish-Gentile relationships were always full of suspicion and hostility uh, and even violence. And so as, as we look at Paul's life, uh, Luke gives us the account uh, in the book of Acts of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. Uh, and if you read that, you'll see their encounters were continuously challenged with spiritual and cultural conflict. Uh, when Paul invited Timothy and Titus to be his ministry par partners, he was welcoming an uncircumcised Greek onto his team. The Jews hated this. They were angry with him. They pursued him. And if you read the story, you recognize that Paul's problem with his Jewish Christians who were adamant about circumcision just pursued him every place he went. Wow. Uh, and they ultimately tried to kill him because of this, because he was breaking their culture. He was defying their rules. Uh, and they, they believe our way is the right way. And Paul, you've got it wrong and you cannot do this. And so it's that attitude that my way is the right way. Uh, and, and they were believers. They, they weren't uh, unbelieving Jews. It was a faction of Jewish believers that pursued him everywhere and tried to shut down his ministry. Even on his own team, he had problems. Uh, and if you remember in Galatians, he tells us very clearly. He says, okay, uh, I'm, I'm um, in Antioch, and uh, here comes Peter. And uh, he's willing to eat with the Gentiles until some Jews from Jerusalem shows up, and then he rejects them. Uh, and, uh, you know, Peter, Paul is so upset with Peter because of his behavior. And then he said, even Barnabas did it. How can I tolerate this among the people of my own team? And so this whole idea of, of different points of view and my way being the right way and our cultural way being the right way was just clearly evident in the first century. And I'm, I'm sure before that. Wow. 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 <laughs> So the, with the title of the book, um, Teamwork Cross-Culturally, um, the, with these challenges and complexities of <laughs> teamwork cross-culturally, you mentioned earlier, it's just easier maybe just to segment and say, I'm just going to do it my own way, stick with my own. But as I read through the book, the idea of missions with, um, and I can, you know, have you concluded that this is an option, that we can just do it our own way and stick with ourselves or what have you found as you've written this book? Is it an option? Is it not an option? And, and just help us understand the, the, the importance of missions with. Well, you know, Aaron, I can say this, that um, people that try to work together in multicultural teams often decide it's too difficult. We can't do it. Hmm. Uh, one of my friends was working in Thailand and she was working with a group that was trying to work with her and with folks from the Philippines. And the, the Filipinos finally said, you know, this is too hard. We can't do it. And they separated and they did their own thing. Well, you know, there are many mission organizations that are saying our national and denominational cultures uh, are ours and we're going to do that. We're just going to go and plant churches that are like us in other nations, and we're not going to worry about the differences. Uh, and so we see this happening all over the world, that people just say, I, we can't do this, it's too tough. But if we read the scriptures carefully, uh, the, the Lord is very clear that the church is one body. Ephesians chapter 4 is just a profound chapter that I think we need to meditate on. And, and in it, uh, Paul says that we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's over all, through all, and in all. 
And so why can't we work together as one body? Uh, and, and really, the book of Ephesians is an eloquent argument for working together as one body. The dividing wall of hostility disappears between us because of Christ. The problem is that that dividing wall of hostility is something we keep putting back up. Christ died to remove it, hmm. but we raise it again. Wow. And, and so this is the challenge. I think the Lord wants us to do mission with in today's modern world. Hmm. Uh, you know, when I first started with SIL in 1977, we were going to places that were completely unreached. We were going to places where the, the people had no gospel message and there was no education and they were absolutely tribal in their identities. If you go to those same places today, you have college graduates, you have university graduates, you have people who are in established churches, uh, and you have those established churches ready to send out missionaries. Uh, my first trip was to Brazil, and there were no missions going out from Brazil then. Today, there are Brazilian missionaries all over the world. Yeah. And so as we think about this, uh, we really need to work together with Brazilians. Yeah. We need to work together with people from Kenya. In fact, yeah. there's a Kenyan here in Lancaster County in Pennsylvania uh, who is part of the Mennonite mission organization. Uh, and he's a convert. He's yeah. one of the first generation converts from Kenya, now part of the mission uh, and, and part of the mission world. And so we have to work with people from different cultures. And, and we should. That's really what God's intent is. Yeah. We're going to, a little later on, I have a few questions to ask you about some of the um, challenges of this working missions with, and we'll unpack those a little bit. But I wanted to go back to something you shared a little earlier about teamwork in Christ, um, in contrast to maybe team, teamwork in the world, and the, the importance of in Christ, well, how that looks differently versus if we're working in an organization or a, a corporate structure um, that would be in the world. Could you just share a little bit about that for us? Sure. Um, you know, what does it mean to do teamwork in the world? Okay, I'll quote from one of my uh, fellow authors in this book. Our global organization inadvertently fosters a competitiveness that is visible on the field. Hmm. This is our global mission organization. On the surface, it does not seem harmful, but over time it can turn into jealousy, comparison, bringing others down to size, and maintaining my spot in the pecking order. That whole idea of competitiveness, uh, of jealousy, of comparing ourselves to others and maintaining our spot in the pecking order, that's in the world. Wow. That's what it means to do teamwork in the world. And this kind of stuff happens everywhere. Uh, it happened between Julie and, and, and Sue years ago when they were doing work together uh, in, in Borneo right. that they were different and they didn't see things in the same way. And, and if, if we had them both, they would confess to you. Yeah, yeah. They didn't get along so well because they had different ideas about how things should be done. And the fact of it is that we always have different ideas about how things should be done. We we're different people. We're gifted differently. And so we basically um, allow that stuff to come into our lives and it shapes who we are in the world. Hmm. And as we look at this, that's the history of the church. It's fractured. Uh, how many denominations do we have today? It's true. Uh, it's interesting. At Fuller Seminary, when I was working there as the, the senior vice president, we had 123 different denominations in our student body. Wow. Uh, 
in one seminary, 123 different denominations represented. Uh, and so we have this denominational division, fractions, diversity. Uh, and so how do we become one in Christ? That's really the question. And, and how do we do this missional expression in the body of Christ? And, and Paul is very clear on this. It is only by our relationship to Christ. It's only when we focus on who we are in Christ instead of who we are in the world that we can deal with this. And we have to be willing to sacrifice who we are in the world to who we are in Christ. And that whole idea of denying ourselves and taking up the cross and, and being in Christ as opposed to being in our cultures, in our world systems, in, in the committed to the way that we learned to do things when we were growing up. It's this commitment to my way. It's a commitment to my culture. It's a commitment to we're right. Those are the things that divide us because everybody can't be right. And, and as we look at that, this, this division of being right in the world is what keeps us from doing teamwork in Christ. Wow. And I've, yeah, it's, uh, I wish I would have had this book 22, three, maybe 24 years ago, 24 years ago, I might've been able to apply some of the the principles for sure. But um, it's, uh, yeah, so timely. And um, I'm so thankful for it. Sherwood, could you share, um, you give some, some biblical essentials um, for doing teamwork in Christ. Could you, could you share one or two of those for us? You know, Aaron, we're going through this really fast, and I want you to feel free to stop me and ask me to clarify. But as I think about this, um, you know, I, I see our human habits of competition inherent in our relationships with one another. Hmm. And when we have this competition, they lead to small sins, jealousy, comparing each other, judging each other. Uh, and they lead to greater self-reliance, you know, hmm. uh, if you read Julie's case study, you see that people said, okay, we're going to go start on our own. We're going to do it yeah. our own way. Yeah. Uh, and, and we want to do mission from our respective positions of what we think are our strengths. Hmm. Uh, and, and so this whole idea that I know better than the others, that I know how to do this, that my way of doing it will get the job done in the right way. Those attitudes really just destroy us. They, they divide us. They basically keep us from walking in the way that Christ sets before us. And then in addition to this self-centeredness that we have, we also have cultural differences. Uh, so when we have a multinational team, you have people coming together from um, uh, six or seven different nations as sure. Julie had in her team. And so in looking at this, uh, we, we really are just torn uh, yeah. in our humanness. But as we read against the scriptures again, uh, Paul says that in our mission uh, in Christ, that we should be focusing on the cross. Uh, hmm. I'll read from 1 Corinthians 2. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with fear and trembling. One of my friends, Paul Jung, has talked about doing mission in terms of weakness. Paul is a Korean, and Koreans don't believe in weakness. But Paul <laughs> understood that, you know, if you're going to, to serve Christ, you have to do it in the weakness of the cross. Hmm. And, and Paul, I think, 
right on this, Paul Jung. He said that Christ crucified provides the theological grounding for mission with, that it's out of the position of weakness. Unless we're willing to surrender our obsessions with organization, our competition, our rivalry, our pecking orders, we just can't fulfill God's purpose. Hmm. And so the first principle is to understand that God's mission requires us to come in weakness. Hmm. And, and we just don't like that. For sure. Uh, we, we want to be in control. We want yeah. to make sure it happens in the right way. And, and so we tend to come not from the weakness of the cross, but yeah. from the strength of my cultural understanding of leadership. Yeah. To me, uh, this, this whole idea that we have about leadership is really a flaw. Hmm. Uh, there's a, another book that I read years ago that I really liked by a man by the name of David Bennett. And he says that in the New Testament, uh, the, the New Testament writers never use the Greek words for power and authority in leadership. Wow. They do not use them. They avoid them. And when they speak about the church, they're always using metaphors that are not those Greek words. And Jesus says point blank, among those that you are, among the, the, the culture around you, uh, they are lording over you. Uh, mm -hmm. And they basically see, you see them as benefactors. That's not the way it is with you. Mm -hmm. uh, and he says, I'm among you as a servant. And so it's really this critical issue of understanding what we are in Christ that's so important. Uh, in in, in uh, Sue Russell's book, she basically talks about how the early church continued to focus on the metaphors of the church. The whole mm -hmm. notion of one body, a household of faith the temple of God. These are the things that define us. Uh, and so if we see ourselves as, as one body, if we see ourselves as a household of faith, then how do we live in a household? Uh, mm. How do we deal with the sibling rivalries that we have in a household? How do we uh, love each other in a sibling household when we have such different ideas about how things are done? Now, you know what it was like <laughs> with your brothers and sisters. We all know that, right. you know? Yeah. But because we're brothers and sisters, one household, yeah. one, you know, one family, we work it out. We yeah. somehow uh, manage to figure out how to get along with each other and put aside our anxieties and our self-righteousness uh, and, our, and, and our certainty about who we are yeah. and, and work together. Yeah. And so in that, those are the metaphors that Paul gives us. And then the temple of God, you know, that's a profound thing that, that God says, you are my people and you are my temple. Yeah. And how do we then honor the Lord in this? So this whole idea of, of the, the one body um, and, and weakness, those are crucial. There are many other things and you yeah. have to read the book. See the yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, as you, as you mentioned, the idea of pecking order and systems, I think sometimes when teams people see organizationally, this is the way things go. If I do this, this, and this, I can move up in the pecking order. I get these advantages, these benefits. And then what you're sharing is making the decision to lay that aside and say, I'm, I'm going to do what's best for and follow a biblical example and lay aside those benefits of whatever leadership and the jealousy maybe of Hey, they got they got all the benefits, but if I lay it aside, I'm not going to get the benefits. Does that make any sense? Because as you shared about jealousy, that's yeah, that's just my, my thought of of seeing years and missions. People follow a certain system, thinking that you know if I rise in the organization, rise in leadership, or in, within a team, I will get these benefits. And then if to ask the change, then 
there's jealousy that they weren't in the past. Does that make any sense at all? It does. It really does. It's it's one of those kind of things where all of us, um, all of us want to do well. All of yeah. us feel like we want to make a difference. Uh, you wouldn't be in mission if you didn't want to make a difference. For sure. And you want to make a contribution and you know what your gifts are. Yeah. Uh, and so when things aren't going the way you think they ought to go, then you struggle and yeah. uh you you think well if they just do it the way I have in mind it would go a lot better <laughs> and, and of course uh, you know you don't have the challenge and responsibility that perhaps a team leader has of trying to get yeah. everybody to work together yeah uh, and and I think Julie illustrates that so well in the book uh, that's why uh, um, she's really a clearly the co-author in this because it's her ideas and her stories yeah. about how this emerged in her life that basically provoked me to say this is a great thing you need to write it up yeah and uh and so in terms of thinking about that uh julie says well in the book that i just had to give up my ideas of hmm. how to solve this uh, and she talks about the fact that i wanted an elegant solution uh <laughs> an elegant solution being one that was simple that i came up with that would manage uh, and when she presented her elegant solution to her team they rejected it utterly <laughs> they and each one rejected it for different reasons oh, and so, man. so you know we, we we're looking for elegant solutions we're looking for things that are simple that can resolve this and julie finally concluded the only every solution you come up with is what she calls clumsy hmm. uh, that it's not going to be perfect, that never nobody that you never get universal agreement, it's going to be messy, but you can't go forward with an elegant solution. It just creates too much conflict within the team. You need to to work in Christ to come together with some kind of a clumsy solution that will glorify God. Yeah. So well. You know, you talked about uh, the shared about the desire for missionaries. We want to be success. We want to be good stewards. We want to be faithful. And that's another thing in the book. You talked about returns or harvest and um, what Jesus said about these. I think the idea of return on investment and those business principles. Um, what are some reasons discussing these terms is so valuable um, for uh, for in missions and on a missions teams, the idea of returns or harvest? Okay. Um that's that's an interesting question um this is something that i've thought about for a long time and um and and it's one of those things that i never really uh addressed it clearly until i was writing this book um one of the things that i find is that western mission organizations and churches have adopted the language of business and management hmm. uh, church boards, um, uh, university boards, Biola University, Fuller Theological Seminary, the board members always were using the language of business management, hmm. uh, the investment that we're making, quality assurance, cost effectiveness, uh, and, and uh, increasing our productivity. The board at Fuller always wanted to basically get leaner in our operations, spend less money, be more productive. Yeah. And, uh, and 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 they felt like that this really was a better use of God's resources. Hmm. Uh, and so in this, they were really thinking ab about the, the seminary and the church in the same way that they thought about their businesses. 
And I see the same language in mission organizations. Uh, I see it in prayer letters coming out, uh, asking us to pray, Lord, that that uh, we will that, that our investment will give us returns for the kingdom of God. Mm. And, and I hear missionaries saying we have to send prayer letters that that show that they're making an impact in some particular way. And I've experienced missionaries in the field who are in despair because after working 20 or 30 years, they don't feel like they have any real fruit to offer. Uh, and, and they wonder if their donors will get, in fact, I've had some say, we might as well quit and go home because we don't see the fruit. Uh, and so in this, is this what God is asking us to do? Uh, and if you read carefully the New Testament, I went back and I read this carefully. I, I, and before I wrote this chapter, I said, okay, let's see what the Bible actually says about this. And, and what I found was that the Bible is always talking about getting more workers in the harvest hmm. and, not, and letting the harvest be up to God. Matthew hmm. 9, for example, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Uh, in this text, the Lord of the harvest uh, challenges us to pray for more workers. Hmm. I'd pray for a bigger harvest. Hmm. Oh, that's good. And if you good. read further in Jesus' whole discussion, it's that, that God is the one who gives the harvest. It's yeah. always God is the one who brings the harvest, not us. We're called to be workers in the harvest. We're called to water. We're called to sow. But we're not, and, and, and we're given the privilege of reaping, but God is the one who basically determines who is reaped. Yeah. And so in this it's really that the scriptures tell us to pray for more workers, uh, and and this is his particular mission. Now, in this book, uh, I have Matt Crossland's case study uh, from New Guinea working with SIL, and SIL donors are always interested in more books being translated. <laughs> How many Bibles do we have this month? How many dedications do we have this year? Yeah. Uh, how productive are our teams in the field? And, and they really have not asked the question, uh, you know, how many more workers do we have in the harvest? Wow. But Matt was struggling because what they found in New Guinea was they had far more languages than they had workers to translate. Hmm. Uh, and they were desperately in need of workers. And so what they realized was that the best translators were nationals hmm. who spoke those languages. And in New Guinea now, you have many people who have education. You have many people who are capable of learning how to do Bible translation. Uh, and, you know, and Matt was caught between this vice of the donors back in California saying, uh, we need to have more productivity. We need to have more literature produced every month. We need to have people doing this amount of stuff. And we're looking for evidence of that as opposed to the task that he had of trying to equip mother tongue translators and get more workers doing translation in New Guinea. Hmm. And, uh, and so for him, it was, okay, how do I satisfy the donors and how do I really get more workers into the harvest? Yeah. And his chapter is a beautiful story of how he managed that tension between the Western missionaries who had very clear, certain ideas about how things needed to be done, and New Guineans who wanted to be participants in this, but they basically, uh, they, they couldn't work in the Western way. They, they, they just 
were not able to mobilize and get the support of their people and to do things the way these Westerners could do. Uh, and, and not just Westerners, Koreans and, and others yeah. from other cultures, uh, you know, highly developed cultures having these, these business systems to work yeah. with. Um, wow. So the harvest is really the biblical thing. Yeah. Uh, it's God's. And, yeah. the, and the workers, it's our work. Pray, uh, yeah. recruit. Get yeah. more workers in the harvest, and yeah. that we can do, and that's what God challenges us to do. Yeah. So. I appreciate it. It was wisdom, and um, I wanted to ask you about it about it today. I have two more questions. Hopefully, we can we can get through them. Um, unequal partners. Can you share some reasons that unequal partners it can is a is a wicked problem? You know. Um, the the case study I just talked about, Matt Crossan, the New Guineans clearly said we're junior partners. Uh, hmm. We don't have the education you guys have. We don't have the, um, the the skills that you have. We haven't been involved in the training you have. Uh, we're clearly we don't have fun, funds. We we hmm. can't support this. So we're the junior partners. Uh, and uh, they saw the the expatriates as senior partners. Yeah. But the expatriates said, oh, no, we're equals. Uh, <laughs> we're equals with you guys are equal with us because their philosophy was that in Christ we're equal. Well, they're right. But the New Guineans recognize their junior partners in this process. So how do you work with this dichotomy? The one group of people thinking that we're junior and we're working under, the others that, that we're equal, but we demand that it be done our way. And so this tension was a very real tension, and Matt had to work with this. And he he began by saying, okay, I accept the fact. You New Guineans are the junior partners. SIL, expats, you are the senior partners. But how do we work together in Christ? How do we bridge that? And that was his challenge. Uh, the, other, the other case study in this book that focuses on that is Penny Bakewell's case study in Ghana. And she was the leader of a team uh, of, of four, from four different nations uh, overseeing the whole of SIM's ministry in Ghana. And SIM is an organization working all over the world. And so in, this, on her, in her fields there, they had people from eight different nations working in the fields. On her leadership team, there were four different nations. And what she found was that on the leadership team, the Koreans and the North Indians said, whatever you say, Penny, we, we do. Hmm. Penny's the boss. Yeah. She's the director. From their cultural point of view, you know, whatever you say, when you say it, we just shut up. Yeah. And Penny said her biggest problem was silence on her team. She could not get her leadership team to talk because she was the power person and they didn't feel comfortable to talk in the presence of the power person. Wow. And so as she struggled with this, she said, how do I get them to talk? And SIM has a program for developing leaders in which they emphasize servant, shepherd, and steward. Hmm. All of them images of leadership, which Jesus gives us. And as Penny meditated on this, she said, okay, Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. They hear me and they follow me. Uh, and, and I know my sheep. And, and Penny said, I don't know my sheep. Hmm. I don't know my leaders. I don't know them well enough. They don't know me well enough. They're not going to follow me. Or if they do, they're doing it just because I'm the boss. Yeah. How can I know my sheep? And so she began a year-long process of getting to know those people who are the, the, from the four different nations on her leadership team. And what she discovered was that her North Indian partners uh, really saw themselves as deeply inferior to her because she was British. 
Hmm. And they were Indian and the British had ruled India and they were the ones that were always in authority and power. And so they didn't have any right to say anything because hmm. they were the the dumb people from North hmm. India that, that were inferior to the British. And Penny really had to build trust with them and help them understand that, no, they weren't dumb. They were really God's people. They yeah. brought to the theme and God's purpose. And she had to bring them into a relationship where they understood that in Christ they were different. They were hmm. not the superior with the Korean who was on her team, uh, the Korean culture is very hierarchical. And and so from the hierarchical point of view, you just do what the boss says. Hmm. Uh, and you really can't even talk in the room with your boss. And so how do you build this bridge? How do you help this person who comes from this cultural background understand that this is not a hierarchical team, that we are together as one body in Christ? And how do we work through this? And it was, again, building trust, getting to know the person, understanding them deeply, understanding where they come from, and then working out ways to empower them to be able to speak and to participate in her team leadership meetings. Wow. And Penny tells her story of how God really moved in her and through her to get her to this place. Wow. 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 It's uh, yeah. Very, very fascinating. And um, something that we all, I think we experience on the field and um, just your ability to flush it out and help us ask some critical questions uh, really, really is valuable. One last question. Uh, I know I've taken a little more time than I've asked for, but uh, this one is the first time I've ever in 22 years of reading about mission and living on mission. I've never heard anyone ever address it. So it was fascinating and one that I read over a few times. And that's the idea of um, being on a team and a second language and how each of us can navigate communication when we're not necessarily using our primary language. And I've seen that in when I worked in Burkina, I remember I went to uh, France to study French and I got there and I was so proud to tell the national Burkina Bay leaders that I spoke their language. And they said, no, you don't speak our language. You speak the language of the colonizers. That's, <laughs> that's not our language. And so we were but as we communicated, we were all speaking in our, in our second language. They were from Moray. They were speaking in French. I was speaking in French, which was my second language until I learned Moray. But communication, there was those nuances of communication that were missed. I only knew I had a limited vocabulary, the limited words I could share and speak in. And the nuances that people can on teams, we can hurt each other's feelings and there can be problems when we're speaking in English because we might not have used the right word and the right sentence and the right syntax. But when you get on a team and you have a common, you've choose a language that we're going to communicate in, you can just see all kinds of problems. Can, so can you just share about the challenges of this primary language and, um, and secondary language? Okay. Uh, uh, let me just uh, make a couple of comments here about the, the four case studies beyond Julie's that are in yeah. this book. Um, all of the case studies uh, really have the second language, third language, fourth language problem. Yeah. Uh, Martin Zatanda case study on his Nigerian mission to North Africa, the, or the Central Africa all around him, is one where there are so many languages that everybody is using more than one. Everybody. Uh, and so the Nigerians uh, speak much more than English, but English is really the lingua franca. But then they go to Cameroon and they go to um, Burkina Faso or other places. French is, yeah. is the lingua franca. <laughs> and, and Martins is interested in reaching Francophone Africa and Anglophone Africa. And he has Africans who are doing this. So basically, they're always working with more than one language. They're working with multiple languages. Uh, and in that, um, 
there's something beneficial about these this African community because they're none of them are monolingual. Right. Okay. Right. <laughs> they all speak more than one language. Yeah. And so they're tuned into this in yeah. unique and different ways. But the way Martin's really works hard to get through this is through prayer. Hmm. Uh, prayer is the central focus of his mission and how we mobilize people in different places through prayer to get to where they want to be in terms of serving Christ. And then, of course, when they have to, they use interpreters. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's it's really the issue that they, they understand everybody's multilingual and yeah. they know that's a difficult challenge, but they know they're in Christ. Yeah. And, and through the power of prayer, they focus on this being in Christ and how they go from there. Now, all the other case studies, um, the one I haven't talked about is the one in South Asia, but this, the South Asian case study in the book, uh, there are team members coming from Latin America and from North America and, and then from Europe. Yeah. And so you have languages from those cultures and all of them different. And English is the language they work through. And so in this, this situation, uh, there is a lot of hard work to try to love one another, to learn together. How do we work together? What, what kind of ways do we sacrifice to each other so that we, we can accomplish our goal of becoming a team? And, and, and it's really a lot of patience with these Latin Americans, for example, that are learning a second language because Latin America and North America are much alike in that they speak one language. Hmm. The Europeans are a bit different because the Europeans come in a context where they're multilingual again. Yeah. Uh, and so that enables them to be, uh, you know, to, to understand this and have more of a dynamic in this. But uh, I think Penny Bakewell, again, in her case study with the, the four different nations uh, and, and some of them English is clearly a second language. They basically said, you know, we have to talk about this together. Hmm. We have to define some rules of engagement that will shape how we work as a team. Yeah. And so she came up with a series of, of, of about six rules that uh, they said, no matter who is do, speaking, we have to slow down first, yeah. uh, speak more slowly so that everybody has a chance and then put it on a whiteboard yeah. uh, so that people can see it yes, because it some people read English better yeah. than they hear it. Yeah. Uh, and so speak slowly, put it on a whiteboard uh, and then come back and summarize points. Yeah. Uh, and, and those are just kind of tools that Penny uh, adopted in her team, her leadership team. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, when they go out and they're working in multicultural teams in their local areas with more different people, yeah. they basically can do the same there. But yeah. they, they had to really figure out how it, can we change the way we do team hmm. and change the way we do meetings so that uh, we, we basically are continuously aware that some people are struggling to to get this in, in the language that we're using. And yeah. we have to go slow enough, we have to go patiently enough, and we have to give them opportunities to talk and invite them to contribute in yeah. ways that they can be feel like they're meaningfully participating in the group. So I, those teams are really yeah. amazing in terms of how they've dealt with this. And uh, that's one of the values of this book. Yes. You know, I want to say this in, in our concluding, that... Julie and I were slowed down in writing this book because we could not get other people to contribute their stories. Hmm. Uh, and we knew that Julie's stories were just not enough. Hmm. And we prayed about this. We waited on this. And, 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 you know, at the last minute, the Lord gave uh, all four of these case studies that are in this book to me uh, as wow. Julie was dying. 
Uh, and, uh, and it was really just God's gift to us and yeah. said, okay, now you can finish this Sherwood. It's your job to finish it. Uh, you and Julie started it. And here are the, here are the stories that are essential for yeah. you to process this. And so those case studies were clearly a gift from God. And there's so much wisdom in them. And of course, they all would say, the, this is not the way to solve all the problems. This is what God gave, the clumsy solution yeah. that God gave us in this circumstance. Yeah. Uh, and, and here's how we navigated it. And here's what we did. This is not an elegant solution. This is not how everybody else has to work. But you have to find this clumsy solution in your situation with the people you're working with. And there may be some things that you can see from what they have done that give you clues on how to proceed. Yeah. So, uh, Sherwood, when will the book come out? It's in mid-May, I think, correct? Yeah, it's it's basically due within the within the month, uh, and in fact, you can order it now uh, on uh, Amazon. Uh, All right. I had a friend of mine tell me yesterday after I talked to her on the phone. She said, "Oh, I ordered the book today on Amazon, so it's All available right. on Amazon, and they'll send it to you as soon as it's released." Awesome. We'll put the links to that in the show notes. Sure. Would you pray? Would you pray for us today? And um, yeah, just just pray that God will use this, use this book, and um, to encourage teams around the world. Our gracious Father, you are the author of this book. Lord, um, everything in this book you have given to us. Lord, you uh, gave Julie and, uh, and Sue Harris Russell uh, the insights, Lord, and wicked problems and in Christ solutions. Lord, uh, you gave us each of the team members that were working with this problem and you their willingness to share their story, uh, knowing, Lord, that they're in an incomplete journey. And Lord, we just rejoice in how you have led in your spirit to the production of this book. Lord, we thank you for the editors at Baker Bookhouse who read it and who said, wow, this is a significant contribution, Sherwood, that, that we are willing to publish and ready to put out. And Lord, we just rejoice that you are behind this all. And so, Lord, we pray not that any of us will get any glory, Lord, but that you will be glorified in this source that gives us a sense of how to navigate the many nations that are coming together in mission, cooperating together as one in the body of Christ to do your work. Lord, I pray that you would lead us all, that your spirit would show us how to give up my way and how to walk and seek your way. Christ, that we can be your people for your purpose. And so, Lord, I thank you for Aaron. I thank you for those who um, participate with them in this journey of sharing knowledge. And Lord, we just pray that you would use it for your will and for your purpose in all that you do. In the name of Christ, we ask it. Amen. Amen.